so we've been looking in this little series in the Gospel of John and just kind of making our way through this great book, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, we saw basically over the past, this whole segment, chapter 5, is just one long, lengthy segment about a story. And it starts off with a story about a man that basically was paralyzed. He was living in this around this pool called Bethesda. And around this particular pool, uh, Jesus comes into this arena and heals this guy. And all of a sudden, he's walking. And Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. He's walking. He's healed. He's made whole. His whole life, we're told, actually, detail in the story that 38 years he suffered this particular malady. And then in just an instant, Jesus heals him. Uh, we're told that he goes up to the temple. He has some sort of interaction or encounter with the religious leaders of the day. They're upset because they see him walking. Uh, and apparently it's not, it's not okay to get healed on the, on the Sabbath. Like, uh, God forbid that happened. And so that's kind of what happens. Uh, they ask him, why are you healed? And he's like, well, some guy, I don't even know idea who healed me, healed me. And then Sooner or later, Jesus comes around, has interaction with this guy. He says, hey, I'm the guy that healed you. Uh, then he immediately runs away from Jesus, finds his religious leaders. Like, I know the guy who healed me. His name is Jesus, which is crazy because on the one hand, Jesus completely ended his life of suffering. But he, in one word, began the life of suffering for Jesus. That's, that's ministry, by the way, if you're trying to figure out, like, what is ministry like? Ministry is giving your life away, and then oftentimes having that turned around in some sort of weird twist of fate to where now you end up having challenges and hardships that you absorb in your life. That's what happens in this particular context. And so what we see, then he begins to bring forth all forms of means uh, unleashed upon Jesus, where Jesus now becomes basically the enemy of the state and of Judaism in proper Second thing we see with regard to this is that Jesus, as he's confronted by these guys, their intent is very clearly to kill Jesus. Uh, why? Because Jesus, we're told, uh, not only does healings on the Sabbath, he's doing work, so supposedly on the Sabbath, uh, that was viewed as unlawful based upon their traditions. And Jesus is also going around claiming that he's something far more than just simply a prophet, which is what we're going to get into next. And then that leads us to the very last thing with regard to this larger whole of the chapter. So from verse 19 on to the very end of the chapter, is this very extensive, lengthy monologue from Jesus. In fact, up to this point in the Gospel of John, it's the longest ongoing monologue of Jesus up, up into this point. I think the only other monologue of Jesus up to this point, in fact, if you guys, anybody, anybody have a red letter Bible? Red letter Bible? Okay, both of you? Great. Um, you, you know that you'll see that like red lengthy section. That, that's, all, that's all Jesus talking. So, so obviously Jesus has a lot to say here. And that's what we've been unpacking and looking at. So um, I'm going to make reference of this. In fact, if you were not here last week, my recommendation would probably go back and take a look at this. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. But I want to talk real briefly about chiastic structure. That's why we read these two uh, opposite verses or passages here. Uh, chiasm is basically a literary device that presents a series of ideas and then repeats them in an opposite order to enhance the message in order to highlight the author's main point. Next slide. We'll go through this real quick. It's going to freak you out. It's just hold tight. Um, so the very center of this, this is a very lengthy passage from verse 19 all the way down to verse 30. Massive, massive chunk of what Jesus is teaching here. A lot of theologians believe that what is happening here is this literary device called a chiasm. And what we're looking at is kind of various opposite ends of these passages making our way towards the very center, which is uh, verses 24 to 25, which tells us very clearly that Jesus is the source of all life. And in order to access this life, one needs to believe, to trust 
Jesus with their whole life, uh, to, uh, to, to pledge, if you want, allegiance, to give your devotion to Jesus. This seems to be um, the whole idea. So we've been looking at the various opposite ends of this chiasm, moving our way towards the center. So hopefully that makes sense. Let's jump back into the passage here. So, um, John has been communicating from the very beginning. So, the, the main two passages are segments of passages that we're looking at. Again, just for reiteration, is verse 20 and 21. And then the end of the chiasm, or the opposite end of the chiasm, is verse 28 and 29. So, both of these two passages have some uh, key elements that kind of tie them together. Namely, the idea that Jesus is the one that gives life. No Jew at all would argue that Yahweh gives life. This is kind of the big, obvious E on the I chart. Of course, Yahweh gives life. We know that. The opening sequence of the Bible tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God breathed. In the beginning, God does all. God is the creator. Yahweh God is the creator God over all things. That's central. Uh, They were not humanistic. They were not materialistic. They believed in a God that actually created all things into being. And again, God didn't just simply arrange things um, from something. is what we would call ex nihilo. God created ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. In other words, for you and I to create something, we are always creating something out of something. Uh, Think Legos, right? Um, You create something out of Legos. I you know, you, you formulate them, but you begin with these little plasticky blocks that you then stack upon each other, and you craft them and create them and use your architectural genius to create a Millennium Falcon or something even far greater. Uh, but the point that I would make is this, is that we create out of something. God does not create out of something. He is not dependent upon something. And this is central to how Jews uh, would have understood Yahweh God. He creates out of nothing. And that this is the idea. This God um, is also, he's the life giver. He breathed life into Adam and Eve, and they became living beings. So this is central to the story of John. John has been telling us from the very beginning of the introduction of John chapter 1. Uh, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And then he says, the word was God, and goes on down. He says, the, the, the word created all things. That whoever this word is, we know, because we've been kind of, you know, studying the book, the word is obviously Jesus. He's the he's the, the the actual verbiage, the reality of who God is. He is the word come flesh. That Jesus is also a giver of life or creator. What's significant about this passage that we just read is that this is Jesus' own declaration. So John's been saying this all along, but this is the first time it's really recorded, I guess, in a very lengthy monologue, that Jesus himself is making this declaration. So you can say something about someone else, and that's, that's good and all, but they, they're going to have to prove it. Or you can have that person come on and see and be like, oh, yeah, I, I am the one that gives life. And this, you know, for all intents and purpose, purposes, is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's making this uh, self-determinant declaration as to who he is and what he's up to in this world. Now, this obviously would be controversial in his day. Um, so much so that they think, well, we have to deal with the, the Jesus problem because he is making himself to be equal with God. God creates. Jesus is claiming to be the creator. God gives life. Jesus is claiming to give life. God forgives. Jesus is claiming to forgive. Who does Jesus think he is? And that's a good question to pause and think about. Who does Jesus think he is? That's one that you should chew on and think about. Who does Jesus think he is? He is. 
It's an important one. Because whatever Jesus and however Jesus thinks himself to be, the question for you is, is do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? If you do disagree with that, on what basis do you disagree with that? And, uh, you know, again, these are just worthy questions to ask and to ponder and think about. Because if there is a disagreement with who Jesus is or who Jesus claims to be, then that's something we have to reckon with. We have to think through. Because whatever it is that Jesus said was so powerful that it actually brought people up from their invalid status or brought them up from the grave and raised them to newness of life or brought forth this whole movement we call Christianity. This church came forth because Jesus rose again from the dead. We have to think carefully about what did Jesus really say about himself? And if he did say this about himself, again, like what C.S. Lewis pointed out, like we said last week, he's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. And C.S. Lewis kind of pushes back, says, there's a lot of people that want to go around and say, Jesus was a really good teacher, but I don't think he was Lord. And C.S. Lewis's whole point is like, you really can't say that. You really can't say that. If, if someone is a liar and they're going around deceiving people, would you also say of them that they're a good teacher? Would any of us look at someone like Hitler and be like, you know what, he's, he's a really good military leader. I don't think that's silly because all of us would be like, no, he, he abused everything in his life and he brought death everywhere he went. So you would never look at someone like that and, and, and offer some um, means of... Uh, uh, I don't know, affirming them and who they are. But that's the whole whole point. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. If he's Lord, then you have to ask the question, question, how have you oriented your life around his lordship? Has that impacted you? Because, again, we say this all the time. Christianity, at its very core, is not about you just simply believing certain key ideas and thoughts and principles and, um, you know, do's and don'ts. Christianity, at its very core, is you orienting the sum total of your life around the lordship of Jesus. That, uh, it encompasses everything about who you are, how you see yourself in this world, how you see yourself interacting with other people. Should you forgive somebody? Should you love your enemy? Should you hate your enemy? How do you see your sexuality? How do you identify that? How do you think about your sexuality? Uh, how do you spend your money? How do you think about your career? All of these things are radically impacted and influenced by Jesus as king. You can't get away with that. It's just Jesus doesn't leave us that luxury. So with that being said, I'm going to move on to this very last thing with regard to this idea. I want to just jump right into the text and think about Jesus' monologue. Now, the other thing I want to talk about real briefly before we jump into this is that uh, the prophets, John seems to be pointing back to uh, some very important key uh, prophecies that go all the way back. So we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years that Jesus, when he speaks, when he talks, he makes allusion to these Old Testament prophecies. In other words, Jesus uh, very clearly shows forth that he was a Jew of his time. He understood the Torah. He saw himself as not just some sort of radical revolutionary dropping into human history and creating something brand new. That's not who Jesus was. It's really important to understand this. Jesus was Jewish, first and foremost. Jesus had a heritage. Jesus was part of a legacy. Jesus was part of a family. And this family was something that Jesus very clearly held on to, respected, valued, and recognized that he was a part of this long lineage 
That's important to know, especially in our culture today that loves to challenge anything that's older than like five years old. It's like, oh, that's old, that's so old school and that's outdated and that's, you know, just a horrible means of oppression. Jesus says, no, 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 I'm, I'm part of a larger family. I'm part of the Jewish uh, heritage and part of the Jewish heritage also involves the Jewish scriptures, which means all of the prophets. So Jesus makes these mentions of these prophets. And so what I want to talk about real quick with regard is, is that Jesus seems to be claiming. Again, you can test this. Jesus seems to be claiming that whatever the prophets, the sum total of what the prophets prophesied, Jesus seems to be coming on the scene and saying, yeah, that's me. These were in reference to me. They talked about me. I'll give you an example. So Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to go through a handful of these. I'm not going to go through entirety because it's a very lengthy passage. But I want to just hint at these important key facets. Because again, Jesus in this particular passage right here is indicating that just as God is the one that raises from death to life, so he, so does Jesus. Jesus raises from death to life, just as God is the one that will be a part of this overarching narrative that will culminate in some form of standing before God, what we would call judgment or recognition or reckoning, final reckoning. Jesus is saying, I too, I am that one that will be part of that whole thing. I will speak and people will arise. So again, either Jesus has clout or he's just a crazy guy. But listen to what the Old Testament prophets declare, and I'll just go through these real quickly, and then we'll kind of compare it with some of what Jesus has to say. So Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14 is a very lengthy passage. Some of you are probably familiar with it. It's the uh, Valley of Dry Bones. Um, but it, it, it formulates a very lengthy passage from the prophet Ezekiel about how God will bring the people of Israel back into the land. He will bring them from death to life. Now, if you remember way back in the day, they were off in exile. They were a nation that was under the oppression of the Babylonians or another uh, ruthless nation at that particular time. They didn't have the freedoms that they like to think of. They were away from their land. They didn't have all the, the benefits and the blessings and the goodness that they had once hoped for. But God's making this promise. He goes, it's like, you guys have been in exile, but I will bring you back. You have been death, dead, and I will raise you back to life. You've been a place where you've been scattered, but I will gather you back. This seems to be what he's describing. So Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. I'll go through this real quick. The hand of Yahweh brought me, he's referring to Ezekiel, to a valley full of dry, very dry bones. The text basically says very dry bones. Just some translations will say they were, they were all white, which basically means that they've been sitting in the sun for a very long time. They're very, very, very dry, very dry. And then he said to me, God speaks, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and then say to him, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you. And here's the passage I want you to listen to. And you will live. And you will live. Hold on to that. Jump on down to verse 12 and 13 and 14. And then there's a series of, I will do this. And it says, I will open your graves and raise you. Verse 13, you will know that I am, also, that I am Yahweh. In other words, you'll have this, re, this revelation, this realization. I am God working on behalf of you, not against you. I'm for you. Uh, verse 14, I will put my spirit within you and you will live. Again, the phrase, you will live. Now, go backwards to Ezekiel 36. So again, this is part of a larger whole. I want to go back a little bit. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 32. 
it says this. There's a series of I will statements that Yahweh declares. He says, I will bring you into your own land. In other words, you'll have land. Rather than being dispossessed of this land, rather than being in exile, in a, you know, we would say not being at home. If you guys ever been in a state like that when you've been far away from home, you know what it's like. You're living in someone else's cramped quarters, and it's not you don't have your own pillow, you don't have your own blankie, you don't have your own you know like like um, pajamas that you sleep in. There, there's a sense of like a displacement. This is what Israel was living on a very very large scale. God says, "I'm going to bring you home. You're going to be brought back home." And then he goes on to say, verse 25, "I will cleanse you," which means that they were filthy. They had defilement. Verse, 30, uh, verse 26, he and I will give you a new heart. Verse 28, and this is, I will be your God. These are all ways in which God is basically uh, bringing about a synonym of life. Living involves and entails all of this. That's what true life is. Being forgiven, being brought home, having a place that you can call home, know, uh, having a place where you know that you are welcomed. That's being alive. Uh, Jump on down, if you want, to the book of Daniel. This is another passage that talks about life, or the book of life. It says, at that time, Michael, Michael is an archangel, and he says, uh, he will arise. He's the great prince who was in charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. This is referring to a a period which we, I would definitely believe this is a future state, no doubt. And then he goes on to say, and your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name uh, shall be found written in the book of life, book of life. Uh, and it says, and those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who will turn many to righteousness like the stars uh, that will live forever and ever. So this is another prophecy. Now, again, I want you to listen carefully to what Jesus has to say. Just listen carefully to what Jesus has to say and see if you cannot pick up the, overtune, uh, the, uh, the, the overtones of what Jesus uh, is describing with regard to these Old Testament prophets. Listen again. John chapter 5, verse 21. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jump on down to verse 28. The hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and they will come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus, no doubt, he's not making this stuff up. He's literally quoting these Old Testament prophetic images. And he's basically saying, I am the embodiment of these. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just somebody that you can like, nod your head at me like that was a really great sermon like you have to think carefully and clearly about what i'm declaring jesus would say and make decisions about how you will orient your life around me so much so that jesus says apparently that at part of his future state will come this declaration all will live and some will be raised to this resurrection of life some to this resurrection of judgment now again i want for us to think about this word Life that he describes here, because this is the kind of the key that Jesus is saying. Just as the Father gives life, so also the Son has power in and of himself to give life. This is really crucial to know. You and I as human agents, human beings, we are dependent agents. We are dependent upon the life of other people. From the very moment that we were born, we did not create our own life. We were brought into this world by an incredibly amazing woman that was pregnant, that carried us, that delivered us, 
and then nurtured us those first few months of our life that our existence was dependent upon another. You say, I didn't have a mother. You were dependent upon something, whether it be a machine or a doctor, some form of apparatus to keep you alive. We are dependent beings. God is not. God is freedom. We would say God has ultimate freedom to give life to whom he desires. You and I don't have that capacity. So the word that he uses here is really important. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 21, says the Father raises the dead and gives life. So the Father gives life. Again, uh, in the ver- rest of the verses, says the Son also gives life. If you want to jump on down or make note of this, uh, John chapter 6, verse 63, says the Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life. So this is fascinating. Uh, again, the, a lot of times people will say that the idea of the Trinity is actually not in Scripture. It's totally in the Scripture. It's just right here. It tells us very clearly that God the Father God the Son, God the Spirit are active agents in this world. Doing what? Condemning, making your life miserable, trying to destroy you, trying to wreck your image. No, actually the exact opposite. To give you life, that's what God's up to in this world. The question that you have to wrestle with and think through carefully is are you submitting yourself to the active agency of God and saying, God, I want all that you have? Or is there resistance? Or is there malalignment of your life with who God is? Am I going in and out again? Okay, all right. So I want to talk real quickly about the distinction between what's known as zoe and bio. So the word zoe that's actually used here in this particular Greek word is the word zoe for life. Um, There's also another word in the New Testament, actually two other words that are oftentimes defined or described or translated as life. The other one is bios, we get the word biology from. And then suke, which is, we get the word psychological from. Um, but each of these define or describe a variety of form of life. I want to just go through a real quick uh, distinction of this. So the word zoe appears about 135 times throughout the Greek New Testament. Uh, in a singular sense, it can oftentimes just be re- a reference to life. life. Um, and then oftentimes it gets modified. So it be described as like eternal life. Uh, Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. Um, we see what's described as a crown of life, or and then ultimately people who have encountered this living God are oftentimes described as what the scripture describes as being written in the book of life. So apparently in the kingdoms of heaven, God has a ledger, and this ledger apparently, again, metaphorically, symbolically, real, real I don't know, but the fact of the matter is it's, it's there, it's stated very clearly that there's something, at least that God has some sort of acknowledgement. There is a book that has... Uh, called the names of all people that have been moved upon by this God, been brought or awakened to life, known as the book of life. Now, what's the difference between Zoe and Bios? Bios would be kind of this description of just uh, being alive, physically, actively alive, an active agent. Uh, Zoe would be kind of this idea of being animated, while being physically alive, but being animated. Um, oftentimes, the way the New Testament describes Zoe is this life that's animated by God, animated by the Holy Spirit, where it's not us, it's not our flesh, it's not our desires that are oftentimes moving or motivating or, or causing us to make this decision. We're, we're living our lives in a way that's in alignment with who God is. This is what would be described as Zoe. It's interesting, over the past three years, um, psychologists and sociologists and people that have studied human behavior behavioral patterns, have noticed that there has been a massive spike in what they describe as existential anxiety. Existential anxiety. 
It's different than regular anxiety, apparently. Regular anxiety could be you're freaking out because you're about to run out of gas and you're not really sure exactly where the next gas station is. Existential anxiety or regular anxiety might be because the, you know, internet is not that fast and it's taking a long time to download whatever videos that you're trying to watch. You're not doing that right now. But the point is existential anxiety is that type of anxiety that comes as a result of this feeling of dread or panic that arises when a person confronts or is confronted by the limitations of their own existence. This oftentimes leads to thoughts of death, meaninglessness, insignificance. All of these are triggers that bring about existential anxiety. Things like COVID, things like wars, things like the next crazy thing that's going to happen, UFOs that are just popping out of nowhere, the mothership that might be coming around somewhere. Like all of these things cause us this sense of existential angst. Experts actually hypothesize that existential anxiety uh, affects everyone, uh, all people, human, human beings, with at least three main features. Number one, they describe it this way, anxiety about fate, future, and death. Anxiety about fate, future, where am I going, what's life going to look like, will I ever have kids, will I ever get married, Uh, will, uh, you know, something bad happen to me, Um, ultimately about death, if I'm going to die, what type of legacy am I going to leave. Secondly, they describe anxiety of emptiness and meaninglessness. One of the worst things that could happen to a human being is we just go through this normal routine of life where at some point we stop and pause and look at our life and be like, what am I even doing? Why am I even doing this? Why am I even alive? Like Nietzsche wrote a lot about this whole idea of this dissonance that we oftentimes find in the midst of our life, trying to make sense who I, who I am, what am I doing, is it of any value, of any worth, and if it is not of any value, of any worth, why even go on living? In this worldview, in this context, suicide is an act of bravery. And I want to just really clearly point out, that is not the story of the gospel. The gospel says, no, Satan, the devil, wants you to die. He is a thief. He is a liar. He is a murderer. He will convince you that your life is meaningless. Therefore, the ultimate story that we find within our culture today at large is a story that breeds death, that fuels itself upon the emptiness and the meaninglessness of human beings. And then lastly, it's, it, uh, experts hypothesize that existential anxiety oftentimes comes out by way of uh, guilt, shame, and regret cycles that we find ourselves realizing. I'm not living up to even the very moral standards that I want to live up to. And all of these things bring about, create this nonstop um, cul-de-sac of existential anxiety or angst. And I would say all of this is the exact opposite of Zoe life that Jesus says, I've come to give. I've come to give you life. Not just bios, not just existence, not just where you breathe and your brain moves and you think and you scroll mindlessly through your cell phone, but something of value and meaning and purpose where you are known and you are known by others and you know other people and you are investing in other people's lives and there's actual meaningful life practices that you find yourself engaged in. This seems to be the idea of Zoe that Jesus says, the Father gives Zoe and I give Zoe and the Holy Spirit gives Zoe, but not everybody gets Zoe. Everybody is biologically alive. To, to be human means you are biologically alive. Not everybody has Zoe. There are people that are just existing. They're just going through the phases, the steps, the actions of life. Rising, 
eating, enjoying whatever bit of existence there is, and then repeat all over again. But there's more to life than all of that. So what Zoe does, it enables us in at least three specific things, and I'm done. Zoe, number one, enables us to know God and to assure us that we are known by God. Number one, it assures us uh, that we are known by God, that know God. Listen to what John chapter 17, verse 3 says. This is eternal life. This is eternal Zoe. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Zoe, this type of life, this type of living, is about knowing the one who created you and knows you and loves you. I think there's a deep ache in every human being to truly want intimacy. This is what's driving so much of our culture today. We just want to be known, yet we are locked in this matrix of social media where we are in awe. I'm reading a book right now. It's all about celebrity culture within churches. And they made this point. It was so fascinating to me. It was talking about there's something in our culture that we sit in awe of um, celebrities because we, we believe that within the realm of being in the presence of another person who's a celebrity, there's a sense of awe and transcendence. Guys, that is a counterfeit of what it means to be in the presence of God. Because at some point, that person, that celebrity, that glory, the glow, the glitz, the glamour that they have, at some point, that glory will fade. In other words, we just say they will become irrelevant. And we can think about how many musicians, even at the beginning of the pandemic, that they had a one-hit wonder, and everybody knew who they were, and everyone was sharing them and posting them. But today, you don't even know, you don't remember their name. Tonight, I think, is what are the Emmys, is that what it is? Grammys? I don't, even know. I don't pay attention. I don't care. But whatever it is, it's all about, you know, movie stars, glamour, celebrities. At some point, 20 years from now, you're not even going to remember who these people are. You're not even going to remember what movies they represented. Two years from now, you're not even remember. Six months from now, you're not even going to remember. You get the idea. This is, but in the moment, there's this glory that we are longing to somehow be connected to or attached to or fixed to. What I'm saying to you is that that glory cannot, will not bring a reversal of this existential anxiety that we feel in this world. But Jesus can. So number one, we see that Zoe enables us to know God. Number two, it frees us from evil, sin, and destruction. We'll go through these real quickly. John chapter 3. 5 verse 24 says whoever hears my word and believes has eternal zoe and he will not be judged but crossed over from death to life and again we've got to think a little bit about this idea of judgment why is that such a thing a theme that jesus keeps bringing up look guys at the end of the day the best way i could just simply put it this way this planet that you and i exist on does not belong to you and i it first of all belongs to the one who created it god he gave it to us to be stewarded. We are not owners. We are renters, right? We are stewards of something that has been given to us. When we act as if we are the owners of this thing, and we are, everything rises and falls and depends 100% on what we show up and do, and therefore, if God were to step in and say, I want it done this way, and we say, no, 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 I'm in charge here, then at some point, we will have to face the consequences of what it means to push God out of his own existence, we will have to face that. You cannot fight against or resist the way the, the, the system is made and not expect any form of consequences. This past week, we saw the sentencing of the Christian Smart case. And if you've been following that for any length of time, 
you know it's been a very long time. My wife and I, when we first moved here, very shortly after we first moved here, we started hearing of, there were at least several young college-aged gals that were murdered. And it was, it was shocking season for us. I mean, the, 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 the two uh, segments of murders were actually unrelated, but the first one, the Paul Flores case, that just ultimately got the sentencing. Like, it's interesting even just reading the, the comments on that, that people, there's a sense of like, yes, justice has been served. So there's a sense where we understand that, that he violated the rights of another human being. He took the life of another individual. He brought hell, unleashed destruction, the forces of anti-creation upon the lives of, of many, 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 many people. And now he's facing the consequences of that. And, and I say that of a somberness of reality. But the point of the matter is, is that that's not too unsimilar to the fact that God created this world and says, by way of design, I want this thing to operate in a way that brings me honor and glory and brings love and kindness and generosity and goodness to other people. But if we operate in a way that's outside of that, say, I will take matters into my own hand, then we will bring upon ourselves that brokenness. And we will have to, what Jesus seems to be saying over and over again, we will all stand before this creator God and have to give an account for how we live our lives. The choices we made, the decisions we followed. This seems to be clearly what Jesus is saying, but this Zoe, this life, but whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life. Romans chapter 8 verse 2 says this, through Jesus, the law of the spirit has given us life so that he set you free from the law of sin and death. And then the last thing is First John chapter 5, verse 8. It says, anyone who's born of God does not continue in sin. God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. Just think about that. This is what Zoe does. This is Zoe, this life from God. It protects us from the evil and destruction that's rampant within this world. And then lastly, we see that Zoe also enables us to live free, fully and abundantly. Just one of my favorite passages in the Bible. John chapter 10, verse 10. It says, the thief referring to the devil. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and might have it to the full. Uh, I remember my youth pastor years ago used to say, Jesus didn't come to subtract life. That's the lie. Oh, if I give my life to Jesus, my life's going to be an endless, eternal bore. It's going to be filled with subtractions, things I can't do, things I can't say, things I can't watch, people I can't go hang out. No, 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 no. You, you don't understand. Like That is literally propaganda from the evil one. Like, that's, those are the lies. He wants you to believe that. Like, if there's a devil in this world, that's exactly the storyline he would want you to believe. But Jesus' own words say, I've come to give you life and to add that in abundance. In other words, I haven't come to just add life to you as, a, as an appendage to your existence, but to multiply life upon life upon life upon you to bless you, to bring you into a place of full abundance. So, Lastly, and I'm done. I'm going to have the worship team come on up, actually. We're going to end it in a song. So you guys, why don't you come on down, make your way down. And uh, more on them just a second here. But as they are coming down, I want to just finish this little last thought here. What I love about Jesus and what he's describing here is this idea of what Jesus communicated, the life that he says, I have come to bring, which is the same life that the Father has come to bring. All of this is Jesus' way of undoing this existential angst or anxiety that's prevalent in our world. I mean, just think about this. Existential anxiety that comes by way of these ideas that we just described of what's our fate or our future going to look like or what's going to happen when I die. Jesus ultimately comes along and says, I've overcome death. You don't have to fear death. 
You don't have to be afraid by this. I've given you a future, and I've given you a hope. Our hope is secure in Jesus. This is exceptionally good news, especially with people that have faced their own mortality. The older you get, the more you accumulate means by which you have to face these types of things. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus says, I've come to overcome death, to undo the forces of death that have been unleashed upon this planet. Secondly, we see that Jesus also gives our lives meaning and purpose. It's one of the most amazing things, especially in a culture that is lost in trying to discern, who am I? Just watch Zoolander 2. Do not hold that against me. And over and over and over again, the line that just keeps appearing is, who am I? Who am I? All right? Um, the point is, I just, yeah, I just pulled off Magnum. But the point that I would make is this. is This is the question of our culture right now. Who am I? We don't know. We have no clue. We're lost. And we're shopping for an identity everywhere except the one who stamped his imprint upon your soul. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus says, I've come to bear your consequences of sin and brokenness upon myself, to let sin and death and the consequences that are unleashed upon this planet, in this world, upon myself, to take them, to absorb them, and in its place, to create something brand new, and to gift you, to give to you, to grace you with life, and identity, and a future, and ultimately forgiveness. So those little guilt, shame, regret cycles you find yourself going through, Jesus says, be free. Live. Arise. Step into a new future. This is the good news that Jesus says, I've come to bring forth. So, the Jesus question. Who was he? Who do you say he is? Just a good man? Just a great teacher? Just a brilliant leader? Again, he's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And the invitation for all of us right now is to just recognize, to align ourselves all around the lordship of Jesus, which encompasses the sum total of all that we are.